We are in Colossians. We're finishing up this book today. I almost feel sad about that, um, to, to wrap it up. Such a great book. Um, but we are. We're going to finish it up. I am going to be honest with you this morning, which I'm honest with you every morning, but um, uh, I am not going to spend really much of any time on 7 through 18. You can read that. Uh, it's Paul's final greetings. I'm not saying it's not valuable, or, uh, but I am going to, I'm going to spend our time this morning on 2 through 6 of chapter 4 of Colossians. Um, so I'd encourage you this week to read through the rest of this chapter and, and, uh, and walk through that. There's some really good stuff, but we're just not going to cover it here this morning. Um, and then next week we're going to jump into uh, uh, a series on the names of God. So, Colossians. If you would have your copy of God's Word, if you could open up to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read through verses 2 through 6. 2 through 6, starting at verse 2. If you would join me, stand with me as we read this. Colossians chapter 4. Starting in verse 2, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. Father, that you would help us to, to see you. Father, I pray that you would take away anything that clouds our minds anything that distracts us from you, Lord. I pray that uh, the words that are spoken, would not be a distraction from the truth of who you are and what you have done for us and what you desire of us. So Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name for your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this book has been an incredible book filled with deep, rich theology, um, Putting it all, I want to put it all in context and kind of wrap it all together and, and kind of get to where we're going this morning. So as we've walked through Colossians, the context has been truly, um, we see Jesus, right? The context is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. You don't need extra things. You don't need uh, extra processes. You don't need extra works. You don't need anything else. You need Jesus. He is enough. He is sufficient. He is supreme. He is preeminent. And, and so as Paul is writing to the Colossians, he's debating. He's not debating. He's putting an end to the philosophical nonsense that is creeping into the church by taking all of it and turning it and looking at Jesus and saying, this is all you need. This is it. This is sufficient. 
You don't need anything else. You don't need Jesus plus something. It is Jesus and it is Jesus alone. And as he walks through that theology and, 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 and pointing to Christ as the sufficiency of all that we have need of, he then turns and begins to take the theology and apply it to our daily living. And that's what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Okay, so what is the application? If Jesus is enough, how do I then live? How do I walk? And so he says, put on Jesus Christ and take off the things of the sinful flesh. You don't need those things anymore. You, don't, you are not subject to them. Take them off, and when you take them off, put on this new righteousness that is from Jesus, and walk in love, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and do these things that you are filled by Christ. And then he says, and not only for yourself, but this is how you are then to behave as a body of believers. The relationships within the family and on how you're to, are to uh, treat your spouse and how you're to raise your children and how you are to uh, uh, go about your labors in the light of being sufficient in Christ. That's Colossians in a nutshell. And then he wraps it all up in this nice, incredible challenge. And at first I was kind of like, okay, some, some more just kind of throw out their applications, right? Last minute applications. And the more I spent studying, and I think this may be probably some of the most important truths of application from the book of Colossians this morning. Because now he says, this is how you behave towards them that are within. And he turns and closes the book by saying, and this is how you are to behave in regards to those who are without. This is how you are to live. You know, we, we look at the, the Word of God, and for those of us who have come to know Jesus, we have been brought out of a world of darkness and put, uh, uh, we, we live still in this world of darkness, but a light has, has been given to us, and we have the truth of the reality of Jesus Christ. And, and then uh, I find it amazing, Jesus' last uh, uh, instructions to his disciples that he passes on through them to us are go out into the world and make disciples, right? That is our objective as as. Christians is to go out into all the world. In fact, he says it twice. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. And then right before he leaves his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he says, but now you shall be my witnesses to go out into the ends of the world and proclaim the truth. So that's our job now. My lifelong struggle as a Christian has been this. Jesus died for my sins. He paid it all. And I need nothing else to add to that. 100% salvation through Jesus alone. Now how shall I live? Right? That is the endless walk of faith till the day we no longer breathe on this earth. Is how now shall we live? And Paul gives it to us. How do we maximize our life in this walk until the day we no longer breathe. And I think he tells us three essential, critical elements that will maximize our strength, will maximize our walk, and will maximize our efforts in making disciples of the world. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, and all of my life I've been struggling with how now shall I live, my ears are perked. Because I want to know. Christ saved me, so now what do I do? Well, here it is. Three things 
that we need to understand, as Paul says. He starts out in verse 2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The first thing that he instructs us with, three instructions, is number one, be prayerful in character. Be prayerful in character. What does that mean? It means that it's not just at supper time or, or at lunch time or in the morning at a specific time, I'm going to pray because it's the right thing to do. No, brothers and sisters, there is nothing more important for us to understand than this, that as we walk, we are not alone in this walk of faith and we have a Father who is begging us to call unto Him. We must understand how important prayer is. I could wipe out every program that this church does and have only prayer time, and I would be satisfied and know that we are successfully doing what the Lord has asked us to do. That's how much I believe prayer is essential to the body of Christ. We have a world that's on fire, right? When we walk out there, we see destruction and rage. We see, we see murder. We see violence. We see all kinds of immorality going on. What can we do? Pray. Pray. Brothers and sisters, there is no convincing through words that you will change a person's heart. Only through prayerfully submitting it to the Lord will He answer and change a believer or a non-believer's heart. For some reason, the American church, when we look at the American church, it, it does not, in my opinion, have the power of the church in Asia or Egypt or any other place in the world. you know why? Because we don't pray as we ought to pray. We spend our time coming up with programs and ideas and things that are going to change people's minds and, and perfect teachings and lessons. And so we can go online and we can listen to all the sermons we want and that may spark our interest. It may even spark our intellect. But brothers and sisters, if we are not submitting ourselves to the Lord in prayer, we will not move anything because we are doing it in our flesh. Prayer isn't a suggestion it's not a magic mantra, a spell that we can cast in Jesus' name. So oftentimes we look at Jesus and, and use him as a magic genie that if we rub the lamp, so if we say something specific in a couple of words and then say, in Jesus' name, we'll get what we want. Brothers and sisters, know what Paul says. He says here, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Four things I want us to understand that we have to understand about prayer. Number one, it is a battle. Prayer is a battle. Continue steadfastly. If we would but recognize the power of our enemy that he seeks only to kill and destroy and divide and, and bring to ruin that which God has marked. He is filled with hatred and rage and he seeks to kill you, to destroy you. To ravage your body with sickness and death. Recognize the engagement. Paul's exhortation here is to continue steadfastly. Prayer is mentally, physically, and emotionally engaging. 
1 Corinthians 14, 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Acts chapter 12, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him by the church of God. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Jesus, in a parable, he says, this is what you ought to do. You ought to be persistent in your prayers as this widow, as he shares in this uh, a parable about a widow who goes to the judge day after day after day after day. And finally, the judge says, if I don't answer her, I'm going to get really annoyed. I don't know how many of us are praying that persistently. There have been so many times where I've seen crisis in my own life. I've seen crisis in my family. And when I am desperate, when I'm done praying, I am mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted. Because we are in a battle. Brothers and sisters, you look at Joe Collins, who is walking through physical battle and are we praying engaged in battle recognize the effect of prayer so we just got done Colossians chapter 3 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. I walked through that and I walked through my, my own personal life. I'll preach a sermon on how husbands are to love their wives. And you know what I'm going to do the next day? I'm going to mistreat my wife. You know what, it's probably going to be five minutes after the sermon's done that I'm going to say something harsh to her. You know why? Because I'm filled with sin. And you know what, this passage, when it talks about continually, steadfastly in prayer, be watchful in it with thanksgiving, you know what it tells me when I, when I look at that? I look at it and I look at the world that I'm in and I say, I can't do it. I can't do it. How can I possibly live in the light of Christ? The answer is you can't. You can't. Stop trying. And turn to the Lord and plead with Him. We ought to be using prayer as a recognition of the battle that we are in. And we ought to be praying desperately for God to work His Holy Spirit through my life that I might treat my wife in such a way that I would love her as Christ loved the church. Or that I would parent my children in such a way that they would honor the Lord. There needs to be urgency in our prayer. Recognize the effect that we desperately need Him. So there were four things. Number one is a battle. Number two, and we may spend... I've got two other big points on here, but I don't know if we'll get to them. Hopefully we will, because this is so important. Prayer must be understood. It is a ministry. So first he says, continue steadfastly. The idea is battle. But then he says, continue steadfastly being watchful. Brothers and sisters, prayer is a ministry. 
It's a ministry where we can plead with the Lord to help us with the distractions of life that so easily take us away from Him. Prayer is a ministry that it doesn't matter your age, your your giftings, your abilities, anyone can do it. Some of the greatest lessons I have learned on prayer was from a four-year-old at a prayer meeting where a four-year-old cried out to the Lord for his brother to come to know the Lord. And two weeks later, before he died in a gunshot battle in a gang, he came to know the Lord. We need desperately to understand the effectiveness of prayer. And we need to understand the effectiveness that each one of us sitting in this room has in going to the one who is more than able. God doesn't sit here and grade our prayers and ask, well, he didn't ask it right. Not only is it something we're all capable of doing, it is something that draws our hearts together. Being watchful. Do you know what's going on in the person next to you's life? Do you know that they're struggling at home in their marriage? Do you know that they're struggling with a rebellious child? Do you know that they're that their uh, estranged brother is going into the, the prison because of a heroin addiction? Do you know what's going on? Well, if we are asking and then praying, our hearts will be knit together. You want to know the key and the success of a good church? It's one that prays for each other. Being watchful. We continue in prayer as a ministry because Satan is seeking to, to, to divide and distract. And it's a ministry that keeps us focused. The temptation over and over, not just in the Word, but in our personal lives, and I bet we could all say amen. The temptation is neglect. Neglect. Why? Because we get too busy. We're too tired. I can't do that. And I get it. I'm there. My sinful flesh doesn't want to get up early and spend time alone with the Lord. You know why? Because I want to sleep. Because I want to sleep. But if we came to an understanding that people need us to pray for them, I wonder if it would impact us. I know I hammer on this all the time, and I'm going to hammer on again. 9.15, Sunday morning, most important thing that happens at HGC. We gather together and we pray. We pray for this church. We pray for the churches in our community. We pray for we pray that people would be in the community around us, that they would be aroused from their sleep and that they would be dissatisfied with life so that they would come here and hear the truth and come to know Jesus. You know why? Because I know that Nate isn't good enough. I know that I, and I know that and as, as good as he is, I know that Stephen's not good enough. It's only the Lord that can do anything on a Sunday morning. It's only the Lord that can do anything Monday through Saturday. You know how hard it is? I mean, look at Jesus. He comes to his disciples and he says to them in the Garden of Gethsemane in this most broken hour in a time where he needed prayer most 
And he comes to his disciples. He says, couldn't you just stay awake for one hour and pray with me? Now, I'm not saying all this to lay guilt trips on us. I'm saying this to encourage you that even the disciples who spent three years with Jesus struggled with this. But that didn't stop Jesus from appealing to them and saying, pray with me. Pray with me. How are we going to face a world? How are we going to live in a world that seeks to destroy and to kill, that, that's, that hates Christ? We can't do it unless we understand that it is by watching and by continuing steadfastly. And not only that, Paul says, continue uh, steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is victory, brothers and sisters. We get to ask the Father. We get to ask the Father. He says to us, come, ask, seek, knock. Come to me. If you, even though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will I, your heavenly Father, give good gifts to those who ask me? The one who created all things, the one who spoke stars into existence. He says, come. We are his children whom he wants to hear from. You are not without hope. Maybe you're sitting here today and you say, I'm just not good at prayer. I get it. How do we, how do we effectively pray? How do we walk through this? How do we, you say, I hear you. I read this. I want this. I want to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, but I struggle with it. How do we change that? I think we change it when we understand that prayer is not just a battle. It's not just a, a, a ministry. It's not just a, a, a victory. It is power. Notice what Paul asked for. Paul, right? The Apostle Paul who went around and planted church after church throughout Europe. Who, who was willing to be stoned for proclaiming Jesus. What does Paul ask for? He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I'm like, Paul, this is what you do all the time, right? Why is he asking for it? Because he knows that there is temptation to stop. And you know what? Paul sees the importance of of making disciples throughout the world and he knows that the only way that doors are going to be open, he knows that the only way that people's hearts are going to get changed, that the only way that the gospel is going to continue to get proclaimed even while he's in prison is by praying to the one who is able to do it. He says God would open a door. You know what prayer communicates? I believe he's able. We don't do or say things we don't believe. I don't sit here and say, I'm going to fly off the stage. You know why? Because I'm not going to be able to fly off the stage. If I tried, I'm going to be in some serious trouble. But if I believe that God is able to transform my neighbor's heart from a heart of stone that is atheistic, that hates God, into one that is softened and molded and open to the truth of God's gospel of salvation, then I'm going to plead for my neighbor. Paul was in prison. And he says, open a door. Pray that God would open a door. Why? Why? 
Because he believed that. Do we believe he is able? I wrote down a little note on my notes as I was prepping for this. I thought it was interesting to me. Our prayer life is indicative of our belief life. Either we believe he is able or we hope that he is able. And I think the fervency and the urgency of our prayers oftentimes dictate or at least express the reality of what's going on in my heart. And then I wrote down another question under it. Why is the easiest to do, thing to do for Christianity the most neglected thing that we do? And think about it. You can pray while you're driving because you don't have to close your eyes, you know, right? You can pray while you're driving. You can pray any time. You could be praying right now. But see, we've kind of modeled and, and you know, I... Uh, we work with our kids, right? We, we try and teach them how to pray. And, and unfortunately, so oftentimes we end up getting them to focus on the wrong aspect of prayer. So we teach them, fold your hands, close your eyes, right? It's a great thing. You know why? Because we don't want them to be distracted. But as they get older, if we don't show them the power of prayer, you know what they think? The only way God hears me is if my eyes are closed. And so inevitably, when you are done praying at, at supper, there's a fight. You opened your eyes. Well, how did you know they opened their eyes? Because for some reason, open eyes voids prayer. At least in the mind of a child that doesn't understand what prayer is. But we teach them this. And, and so when we uh, grow up into adulthood and we start to try and mature in Christ, we think there's only certain ways that we can pray. I'm not saying necessarily closing your eyes, but we get in this rut that prayer is this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No, no, prayer is talking to the one who has created you, who has the power to sustain life, who holds all things by the power of his word. And is communicating nonstop my heart to his heart. God, you know what I'm really struggling with right now? Paul prays and he asks for prayer. The door may be open. Why? Because he believes that God can do it. And he asks, you know, what is his prayer? I think it's very interesting that Paul's prayer is not for self-gratification, but for gospel proclamation. So oftentimes our prayers are often about what we need from the Lord. We need money to pay this bill. We need uh, uh, provision for this. We need, we need, and those things are fine. We need to be taking those to the Lord, but the reality is our prayer should be saturated with this fact that we ought to be proclaiming the truth. And so God, would you give me clarity and would you give me a heart for the lost? Would you give me the passion that I might see my neighbor come to Jesus? So Paul says, how do we walk out the walk of faith? How do we walk amongst those who are without in a world that is raging on fire? Be prayerful in character. It should be not something you do, but something that you are. Prayer as a believer. But Paul goes on. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. The second thing that would, we, we ought to be doing, he says, is we should be prudent in our conduct, right? 
We're still here. We still live among them. We still live in a dark world filled with sin. And it would behoove us to know and understand that the world is watching. And we have a responsibility to be prudent in our conduct. Marcus Aurelius once said that what we do in life will echo throughout eternity. And there is truth to that. The reality is that what we do now can have reverberations throughout eternity. Because people are watching. So Paul gets done, he says, Christ is enough, Christ is enough, Christ is enough. Here's how you behave in the light of that. And if you don't, remember, people are watching. Be prudent in your conduct. Your walk is a testimony. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Remember, your actions are seen by the world that, that is a picture of what Christ is. And I'd ask the question simply, how does your conduct communicate Christ? You think about your neighborhood. You think about your, your uh, 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 places of business, your establishments, your, your, your driving. Oh, I love when, when you got the little fish logo on the back on your bumper sticker and then you are going around flipping people off because they cut you off, right? That's great conduct, right? No, I have never done that. And I don't put, it, I don't put the fish bumper sticker on because I do <laughs> cut people off. Kidding. Sometimes. But how does your conduct communicate Christ? If you're in business and you're all about trying to gain financially, you're probably going to have customers that aren't Christians. And are you treating them justly and fairly? Are you treating them in a way that is charitable and generous? How do we treat... You know, we talked about this a while ago. You know, we've got all these strip clubs down the street, right? What happens if a stripper walks into our building? How do we treat them? Does our conduct communicate Jesus Christ to them? You know, we've got this whole ongoing uh, discussion and debate and, and Christianity is being given black eye after black eye and some of it deservedly so about the homosexual community. How do we treat the homosexual What does our conduct look like? Does it proclaim Jesus Christ? Are we walking in wisdom? That if you would remember that your walk is a testimony. Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Brothers and sisters, it only takes one moment to ruin a testimony and forever impact an eternal destination. Thankfully, though, Christ redeems. So we mess up. Get back up. Ask for forgiveness. You know, I think of the story of Peter uh, when they came to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? The fleshly thing, he whips out his sword and he cuts off the guy's ear. I don't know if he was doing that on purpose, like aiming for the ear, or he was that bad a swordsman. He could have ruined the testimony of Christ forever. But what does Jesus do? He redeems it. He picks it up and he heals and he says, Peter, that's not how we're going to act. 
So when you mess up, know this, God can still redeem. Your walk is a testimony. Your walk is also a time. Notice what he says. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. We don't have forever, do we? James says that our life is like a fleeting vapor. Here one moment, gone the next. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, guess what guys, your life is not your own. You were bought at a price. Time, time. We can't be sitting here saying, tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to talk to that neighbor. Tomorrow I'm going to do this. You don't know tomorrow. I read an illustration the other day about an employer who was seeking employees, and so he went out and he found people, and he offered them, he said, I'll give you $1,440 a day. Sounds pretty good. He says, you got $1,440 a day, and here's the catch. you got to spend it all in one day. You can't keep it for the next day. You can't, so you're just going to live off $1,440 a day, Right? And you can't carry it over. You can't save it. you got to spend it all. Brothers and sisters, the story is us. Our currency is time. There are 1,440 minutes every day, and you don't get to carry them over to the next. You can't save it for tomorrow. You can't say, well, you know what? I'm just going to hold 60 minutes today for tomorrow. You have to spend it, and someday you will be standing before the Lord, and he'll say, what did you do with those 1,440 minutes per day? Be wise in what you do. Be wise in what you spend your time on. Be wise in how you are looking at your neighbors. Be wise in how you do certain things. Be wise in your conduct. If you struggle with the words that are coming out of your mouth, know that your conduct will impact them. If you've got a neighbor who keeps letting his dog come onto your property and go to the bathroom on your property, is it the right thing to do to go let him have it? Maybe. Depends, you know, what kind of dog it is. It's a great Dane. I mean, Serene's, you better watch it. No! Your life is a testimony called to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. Be wise. Walk in wisdom. They are watching. Whether you like it or not. We don't live in a bubble. Watch your testimony. Watch your time. And last, Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We need to be third, purposeful in our conversations. Paul says, let us consider our words, not just our actions. We need to be praying because we desperately need God. Because by the way, I don't know about you, when I consider my conversation, when I consider my conduct, I realize how much of a miserable wretch I am, and I desperately need the Lord to walk me through each and every day. And I need prayer as I walk into church of all places. Lord, would you help me to love people in the way that you love people? Because I am a wretch and I will inevitably disappoint someone today. 
Whether it's something I just said, whether it's something I do later, whatever it is, I am going to disappoint someone. And I desperately need the Lord. And I desperately need the Lord in this. That our conversation would be considered. Do you realize how much incredible power there is? James talks about the power of the tongue. The great Proverbs says in Proverbs 18.21, it says that there is life and death in the power of the tongue. That our words have impact and meaning. And so Paul says, let your words always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. Three basic breakdowns of this. He says, number one, they should be filled with grace. Graceful, filled with truth, but graceful. There are so many people out there who are saying, I am proclaiming the truth, I am proclaiming the truth, but there is zero grace in their proclamation of truth, and so it is not received. Truth filled with grace. Jesus says that He is life, and He has declared that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that He is filled with both grace and truth. And so He speaks truth, but He never does so in an ungraceful way. Grace and truth. Grace without truth is worthless, brothers and sisters. Standing at the street corner and saying, you homosexual are going to go to hell will never win them for Christ. Grace and truth. But not only that, he says it should be seasoned with salt. What does that mean? I think of salt. I think of what it's capable of. I think of, of, of why it's so important. Salt stirs up the appetite, right? It, it gets things, the juices flowing as we take a bite of something. It's salty. It's like, oh, that's got some interesting taste. And, and the question I would ask is, are our conversations stirring up spiritual things with people? As you talk to neighbors, as you talk to coworkers, as you talk to the, the person in the checkout line, are our words stirring up spiritual conversation? But the second aspect of salt is salt by itself is never good enough. People don't eat salt for salt's sake. They like what the salt is used on. If you offer me a steak or salt, I'm always going to take the steak. I don't want to eat a mouthful of salt. Too much salt isn't enough. People don't enjoy salt. They enjoy what is salted. And we are called to be the salt of the earth. And I would ask, are our words only arousing but not answering? And the third aspect here that Paul says is, Seasoned with salt, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our words are to be answering. We have the truth. We've been given the truth. And we ought to be proclaiming the truth. Giving people the answers. Paul just requested prayer that he would speak how he ought to, which is clearly... We must be purposeful in our conversations, brothers and sisters. We need to be purposeful in our conversations, not just with the words that we use, but also with the words we do not use. When there's opportunity and we don't speak. Just close with these thoughts. Just a summary of all of this, right? As we walk through, we're called to make disciples of 
the world. We have been given Christ sufficient, preeminent. That's what this book is all about. None of the philosophical nonsense that when we are approached, well, Christ plus this, Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus uh, baptism, Christ plus this, Christ plus some sort of special gifting, Christ plus this. It's nonsense. It's Christ and He is alone sufficient. And this is how when we understand that truth and it permeates into our body, it then flows into our relationships, uh, both in our own lives, but also in our relationships with the body of Christ and also in our relationships to the world. And I would ask this, is prayer a part of your character? Is it in your DNA? The Holy Spirit, we are told, is our helper. He dwells within us. And you know what He does on a 24-7 basis? He communicates with the Father. He's dwelling in us. It says that He utters groans which words cannot express on our behalf. We have been given the spirit of adoption of His Son and it has been indwelt in us and it should be a part of our DNA that we are constantly going before the Lord. You've got problems, take it to the Lord. Your friends got problems, take it to the Lord. Your church has problems, take it to the Lord. You have the power of a Ferrari in your garage and so many of us don't put the key in the ignition and turn it on. Is prayer part of your character, part of your DNA? Is your conduct representative of Christ, filled with love, filled with service? Are your words purposeful in communicating the truth of the gospel, the gospel message so rich and beautiful that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect and holy, sinless life, died on a cross for our sins in our place, and then declared to all who would believe, would receive eternal life. Our message ought to be about that. Our conduct ought to be because of that. And our prayer ought to be because we know our need of Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You as we close out this book of Colossians, this letter that Paul wrote centuries ago. And we find its truths the exact same today as it was for the church in Colossae. So Father, I pray for our hearts that we would recognize our important need for You, that we would be crying out to You. Father, would You just help our unbelief? Would you teach us how to pray? Father, would You guard our hearts when we walk about in this world? Father, would You forgive us where we have wasted time and testimony and redeem. Lord, we know that You're able. You have redeemed our hearts and lives for You. You declare in Your Word that while we were enemies, while we were sinners, You demonstrated Your love and that You died for us. You bought us with a price. And Father, You were able to buy back and redeem. Would You help us to walk in a way that communicates Christ. 
And Father, would you put your gospel truth on our lips? Father, may I, our cry be that which Paul cried out, that we would have an open door to proclaim the word and that you would give us clarity so that we can speak as we ought to speak the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again, that all who would believe could inherit eternal life. Lord, would you be with us as your sons and daughters? As we walk from here, we would not walk in shame and discouragement from past failures, but we would walk in the power of your Holy Spirit that we can leave here embracing the Spirit's power. Knowing that we have power from on high, that we can speak life. Lord, what a joy it is to know. To know Jesus, our Savior. May we proclaim that truth to the world that is dying and without hope. And may we do it all for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.